I'm Nadia Cheney. I am so excited to welcome you to the Adaptogen podcast, where we learn the journeys, the obstacles, the obsessions, and the professional tips from facilitators all over the world. Okay, will you start with your name and where we are? Um, my name is Emily E. Claire, and we are currently sitting at Ichimon Park. Um, we're in front of this fountain, and there are ducks swimming, and it's absolutely delightful on this 40-degree weather day. It's gorgeous. The breeze just picked up, which is, is very nice. Divine. I wonder if we, if you'd be open to starting with this quote that you brought from Braiding Sweetgrass. Yeah, let me find it. Okay. Um, so basically she's having this dream about this familiar market that she went to um, and um, and basically she's going to pick something up and um, so I'm going to just start reading from there. I chose a few rolls, opened my purse, and this vendor too gestured away my money as if I were impolite to suggest paying. I looked around in bewilderment. This was my familiar market, and yet everything had changed. It wasn't just for me. No shopper was paying. I floated through the market with a sense of euphoria. Gratitude was the only currency accepted here. It was all a gift. It was like picking strawberries in my field. The merchants were just intermediaries passing on gifts from the earth. I looked in my basket, two zucchinis, an onion, tomatoes, bread, and a bunch of cilantro. It was still half empty, but it felt full. I had everything I needed. I glanced over at the cheese stall, thinking to get some, but knowing it would be given, not sold, I decided I could do without. It's funny. Had all the things in the market merely been a very low price, I probably would have scooped up as much as I could. But when everything became a gift, I felt self-restraint. I didn't want to take too much. And I began thinking of what small presents I might bring to the vendors tomorrow. The dream faded, of course, but the feelings first of euphoria and then of self-restraint remain. I've thought of it often and recognize now that I was witness there to the conversion of a market economy to a gift economy, from private goods to common wealth. And in that transformation, the relationships become as nourishing as the food I was getting. Across the market stalls and blankets, warmth and compassion were changing hands. There was a shared celebration of abundance for all that we've been given. And since every market basket contained a meal, there was justice. That's a beautiful quote. Yeah. It's a beautiful dream. I love that you chose that quote. And especially because one of the things I was really hoping that we'd talk about is the is exchange and problematizing exchange in, in facilitation, but also just looking more deeply in it. I think, you know, the long conversation you and I have been in over the last two years Bam. <laughs> yeah around this one word consentfulness consentfulness um i would love i'd love to hear you you mentioned it a little bit before but if you if you're open to it just kind of picking open that quote a little bit as a place to start um so in 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 with regards to consentfulness yeah or... yeah i think so should we define consentfulness and Maybe. give a bit of if that can, history and then, try. and then we can loop it back? <laughs> Maybe that's that. what we do. That's perfect. Um, yeah, so I think consentfulness, um, I feel like was a really an emergent property or like it very much emerged from, I think, us sharing space with other people around us. And it was quite a powerful moment. Um, 
It was part of a creative facilitation yeah, training. Exactly. And it was the moment in the second day when we said, what did the facilitator do to make it uh, to, 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 to make it possible for you to take creative risks? That was the question. It's a, com it's a question I ask every time. But in this particular workshop that we were in, where there were so many amazing facilitators. Yeah. yeah and Sophie were there. Yeah. Mo Clark was there. Yeah. Ez was there. Yeah. A lot of people were there and who had a lot of experience in facilitation. It was my first Montreal workshop, I believe. Right. And, um, and so the conversation we had around what creates space that allows risk-taking was, it just had a vastness. Yeah, it. and that's when you it said had possibility. It had, it did. It yep. was, it really opened up a lot for me in that moment. Yeah, I, I remember bubbling over with excitement. Yeah, and that's where you first said this word that I heard it. And I think I remember, like the word just came to my mind so clearly. But I, I, when it came to me, I just thought everyone knew this word because it just seemed like obviously this is the word this to describe is. the dynamic. <laughs> Consentfulness. The whole it's point of consentfulness is that it's something that you're doing that's evolving. And it's very relational and it's like a kind of a continuous exchange of energy and like vibe and like um, attunement with the space and who you are interacting with at a given time. I think where what I previous to that, and I think I still I lean on this word a lot when I don't want to describe consentfulness for shorthand sake. I think of, I call that the field, or I call it thickness. Yeah. Yep. I often talk to facilitators about how you have to develop a certain thickness before other things are possible. Yeah. And I think consentfulness is the act of that thickness. Yeah. Exactly. And so when you asked that question, I was like, oh, it just feels like there's a lot of consentfulness here. And I just saw your eyes open with surprise and you're like, wait, tell me more. What is this? And I was very confused in that moment because, like I said, I was like, this is just a word we use. Um, and so then we start... Which you might say was the future speaking to you. Exactly. This moment may be speaking to you. Totally. <laughs> um, and then... And then I remember going home after that night and just Googling consentfulness. And there was like, I think, 144 Google matches for it. And a lot of it had to do with... Um, Which is 12 times 12. 12 times 12. <laughs> I maybe made up that number. Okay. Um, but, um, yeah. Uh, and from the IT space and from the... Um, uh, um, BDSM space. There was like one article from the BDSM space, but okay. most of it was all about tech huh. um, stuff, um, consensual data. Um, and so it was really interesting to see that something interplay. about sexual predators. That was the text that we used. Um, it was like a prudes um, like manifesto or something like I'm that. I'm going to try to link that for people when they're listening You to link this. it in yeah. um, in the consentfulness document. Oh, good. That you made. Okay, good. Just so you know. Um, so when we, yeah, so after you looked it up, we had a meeting. Yeah, and then we were just kind of deciding to explore it. And so I think it almost like this term started like rever reverberating and yeah. creating its own like Magnet. life in my head. Yes. Um, and I think there is something about like that act of naming. You can start interacting and engaging with it in a particular way. Hmm. And I felt it influencing my lens when I was holding other facilitation spaces, working on HR at my old job. Um, and it was a very powerful thing. And I remember 
that it was in one of those interplays. I forget exactly where it happened, but that's where the care mapping started coming out with the care filled versus careful. Yes. Kind of came. That was um, prepping maybe for the um, that racism workshop we all did? It was before that. Okay. It, I think it was actually around um, HR that okay. it kind of came out initially. Because I remember being in the kitchen at Coco and it coming out and looking at one of my colleagues and we're like, whoa, this is really cool. And it was initially care filled and careful. Careful only. Yes. And so like the differences of like um, care filled, it's like when you're centering care and all this kind of um, warm feelings and holding the other. Um, and then careful is like when you're being a bit more tentative and you're like maybe like checking the tech, uh, what are they called? Checking the, check boxes, the check boxes and where and are the boundaries. And... It, it was a lot more like vigilant, I guess. Yeah. Um, and then it was when we had our first meeting with Miata, Erica, Sophie, that um, I think the connection kind of really snapped in. And then throughout the last two years, we've been kind of expanding care mapping um, to almost have like two axes of like, um, um, so there's careful, care filled, careless, carefree. And, and then there's like an axis of like um, centering the self. Um, what was the other fun? It's like, yeah, it's how, if I remember, it's how close am I to my, how close or far am I to myself? Yeah. And how close or far am I to the group? To the group and who gets centered in those spaces. Yeah. Um, and, and then there's like benefits and limitations to, to each. That was my favorite part. When we got those four, the understanding that care filled has, a, it's not a good in itself. It has a negative side and care less is not a negative in itself. Exactly. It has a very important positive side. And when I started to see the agency, exactly. And carelessness and the entanglement and ensconcedness of care filledness, it really released me because I've always felt a lot of guilt in my facilitation. Exactly. Because I don't over occupy myself with the inner experience of my participants which most facilitators I find do and I've had this inner kind of thread at, do I care enough mm. has always been with me and 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 yet people find my workshops I think quite liberating because I'm not and so over attending I'm not over attending yeah but there's such a feminization in the in the sector so much so that I end up, I end up wondering about myself or judging my, not that it comes externally, but judging myself, am I doing enough? And am I, especially in terms of like following up with emotional, I tend to just say, you know, people can handle themselves. And that's an aspect of care less and carefree. Exactly. And, and the thing is like, what we want is to ideally create a fluidity between these yes. four types of care. Do you think we've defined care mapping enough? Like, do you think we've defined, like, care filled, care, do you know? I, why don't we go through all four? Okay. And give people a sense of what each one is. Do you want to start with care filled? Yeah. So care filled is almost like, it's kind of when you are, feel really held by by someone. It feels really good. Um, you feel very attended to. It's almost like your needs are almost anticipated. There's a lot of attunement. Um if you're the one who's entering that care-filled space, it can feel like a hug if you want a hug. If you don't, that's also chill. <laughs> um, 
and you just can kind of like settle in and let things happen to you and allow your kind of potential to shine in that context. Um, so it's very much centering those who enter that care-filled space. The cost to the care-filled space is if you are someone who is often in that mold, mode of holding and there's very much a gendered and racialized component to it, it's so exhausting. You can forget your own needs in that space because you're always attending to the needs of others. Um, it can create particular norms and invisibilization of labor. It can make it very hard for you to ask, to take, to want, um, to need in different ways. Um, and and so sometimes, like what we've seen in organizations, I've seen, I think you probably have seen in organizations, it's like um, organizations can almost swing too far and there isn't enough of the self in the space. Exactly. For me, um, the image I get with Carefield is the snack table. I have, there, for some reason, that's the image that always comes up is that there's a snack table. And then there's a certain point where you become the snack table. You know, and so it's like, yes, I've made this offering and your needs will be anticipated. I anticipate that you're going to be hungry. I anticipate all your allergies. I anticipate all this stuff. It should feel like home. I want you to feel like you're at home. And then there's like a tipping point of yeah. over caretaking in, in care field. And resentment can come and out and that's resentful. the shadow side. And that's when when I it's my energy that's being fed off. Exactly. And that can happen, um, uh, especially in the training context, but all kinds of contexts. And, and I think one of the things, just going back to the quote that we read in, yeah. in the book, is like, I think that's where the importance of gratitude is, of like recognizing that labor yeah. and making it visible is a way that like care filled becomes, doesn't, yeah, doesn't, becomes healthy, becomes healthy and becomes nourishing and reciprocal yeah. um, in different ways. I think care filled is something that comes up for me in the disability justice work as well. And I love the way it comes across there because it's already reciprocal. Yes. It's in, it's embedded there, whereas in, in more general facilitation or generally organizing, like you say, there's an invisibilizing. Yeah. I thought it was really neat what was in that quote that you mentioned earlier about self-restraint. Yeah. So when someone is there and put out the snack table, you recognize when you're, what you're feeding on is their resources yeah. versus the resources. Exactly. And I think there's also a difference between... Like, if you go and see a snack table and it's, say, funded by a giant corporation, I know I'll just go and say, like, whatever. I'm going to take whatever because I yeah. don't have any... Take some home for later. I'll take put some them in later. my pocket. Exactly. <laughs> but if I knew it was my mom who had spent... Okay, my mom hates cooking, so it probably wouldn't be my mom. But it's someone <laughs> who I love who took the time to, like... Yeah, or spent their own money. Spent their own money or grew their own vegetables yeah. and kind of laid it out. I would probably just take what I needed in that and make sure moment. everyone else had enough exactly and yeah. also go and try and give back give back and say gratitude maybe help clean up in a way that I wouldn't yeah if it were a corporation which is also messed up because there's still someone who needs to clean up that table who needs to lie yeah and who's probably being underpaid exactly yeah okay so that's care filled care and I love the image I love the word care filled it's really worked for me over the last two years because I can feel like I'm so full of care that I've lost, I'm so full of the other that I've lost myself. And that only works if the other is caring for me. And actually when I was on the road for a long time, this was where I got lost 
in the early years because I was so used to, I didn't have self-esteem. I had community esteem mm. that was always being traded. And once I was alone on the road, I didn't have that anymore. And I realized how empty I was, how much work there was to do to actually know myself. I think another part of the shadow side of um, care filled is this, um, and this is something that comes from uh, the Wheel of Consent and, but, um, Betty, and Martin. Betty Martin. It's this idea of who is it for? Yes. Um, and I think that's also a really important question of like, who is this gift for? Is it is it actually a gift or is it something that is actually for the person who is doing the transaction of giving? Isn't that that? Yeah, this is super interesting. So there are definitely ways of thinking of care filled as an act of taking. Yes, exactly. When I want a kind of esteem. Want a type of esteem. I want to erase myself for some exactly. reason. Uh, like you want to have a, there's like a desire for the mar martyrdom yep. to be kind of lived. Mm -hmm. um, I want to put someone in a debt unconsciously. Yeah, yep. or, or consciously. Could be a form of manipulation. Mm -hmm. Um, so that question of like, who is it for is really important to ask because sometimes you don't even realize when you're in it. And I've been in situations where I thought what I was doing was being protective and caring of the other, but it was only after it kind of happened that I realized that I was actually motivated by fear of like rejection or fear of being told that I wasn't enough or whatever. And so... It can be very, very subtle what is actually happening there. And and part of it is just like creating that sense of mindfulness about what is happening and naming it um, and recognizing that like care filledness can be the entryway to all the other types of care, which we'll get into later on as well. Maybe now. Maybe now. I feel satisfied with care filled. How do yeah, you feel? it felt very comprehensive, actually. <laughs> it did, didn't it? Okay, so... Let's go to careful since that's the natural pair. Yeah. Meaning the original pair. The original pair. Yeah, so careful. Um, I think the way that we initially started talking about care filled and careful was almost like um, like careful. We talked about it as music in some ways, like when you're learning how to practice nice. music for the first time. So you have to like hit every single note perfectly you have to know your chords you have to know the chord progressions you need to know the kind of sequence so that your fingers can start moving fluidly across the piano keys or whatever instrument you're playing um and so there is a very there's a vigilance to it um it's very much there is a hyper focus on the other but it's a self-protective nice. thing as well mm -hmm. Um, and, um, yeah, do you want to add stuff? Careful for me really resonates with anti-oppression work in yes. particular. It's really about, uh, for me, careful has a lot to do with patterns, frameworks, mm -hmm. analysis, and boundaries. And, and, and a non, it's a not trusting place. Yeah. But almost that's, and that's, it's beauty. And it's a desire to create safety yes. for someone, either yes. for the others or for yourself. Yes. And so like in the absence of trust, how do we build safety by being careful? Yes. And and I think it's like also it's like and it's verbalizing it's, is a part of it. Verbalizing is part of it. But I also one one thing that I forget if someone agreement. Hmm? 
Making agreements is a big part of it. Making agreements. Explicitness. Explicitness. It's almost like you can look at a list and that is that feeling. You know, it's like, it's the list that gets you into the room in some ways. Yes. Um, And so like one thing that I remember realizing one day was that anesthesiologists use checklists. Yes. Because they want to, it's not that they don't know their craft, right? but they want to make sure that people are safe. Double checking. And they just want to double check that they're not forgetting something. And so that was actually a moment where I released my disdain for, for, for checklists. Careful. Oh, for checklists. For oh, checklists. Very interesting. Because they're like, no, in the end, sometimes it's okay to just like double check and make sure that there are like 10 of those baseline things you need to do to make sure that someone is safe yeah and can access and can access the care that they need ultimately yeah you know yeah i think for me careful is what allows like when we talk about crossing bridges of difference yeah or balancing voice and power that's where the carefulness in my practice really exists it's when by definition i know i have a, a something i can't see yeah you know so how do i cross that bridge i do it by a protocol yeah exactly and that pro- and I can and I and then, as I say, in the, in the absence of trust or intimacy or a shared community, these protocols allow us to cross over to each other without overstepping, without becoming overly intimate. We can still be in community together. It's boundary. See, the care filled can often overflow a boundary. Exactly. And so, with careful. You know, it's like, bring your own lunch, make sure it doesn't have any of the allergens that anybody else has. No sense, please. No, you know, and I'm just like, these are the things that we must have. I need to have signed it's affidavits from everyone. It's almost non-negotiables yeah. in some ways. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and yeah, non-negotiables, exactly. And also agreements in general that um, can sometimes be implicit to not assume, make them explicit and be like, okay, my role as a facilitator is to make sure these, my, my number one role is to make sure these agreements are kept. And also, it's like, if they're not kept, what do you do then? Yeah. Um, and how do you return to that place again? How do you repair and, like, move through it? Um, do we want to talk about the shadow side of careful? Yeah. Yeah. In a way, I feel like we already are. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> but the, I, guess, I guess the careful shadow is when you lose intimacy or where there's and there's less spontaneity yes. there's less curiosity yes. it's like the image that i get is like that typical dry it's not a hug it's not a hug <laughs> it's like an hr meeting where you're like okay i am not a human i am just a number and i am answering these questions and i will be scored accordingly but not based on my life context the organization's life context or anything it's very dry um and yeah yep that's it i think so i think it also has something i guess this is the same thing around like it doesn't become you don't get that feeling it doesn't become only carefulness will never get your group to that feeling of intimacy family where could we go together imagination imagination and and even the next world where we build towards there's no future orientedness. Like yeah. it can be the entry point, but in its experience of time, it's very much in the moment. Yeah. And what is happening now. Yeah. And the past. And what? the past. True. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's often developed in response to yeah. harms. Harms. Or I think where we would even start talking about harm is careful, probably care less also, but careful is where you're really having that conversation about harm. Yeah. Cool. cool. Okay. 
So which one do you want to do? I would say carefree is the next one. Would you? Yeah. Okay. Um, and then we have carefree, which is, um, <laughs> that was funny with you. it's funny. I don't know. As soon as I say the word, I feel like smiling. Yep. Um, I feel like my shoulders open up and I just, it's, um, to be carefree is to just be very much in the moment, to be so present, um, to be joyful, to be playful, um, that's what makes an improvisation even possible. Yeah. And the improvisation of a group field mm -hmm. becomes possible. It's very spontaneous and responsive mm -hmm. to what's in the moment. Mm -hmm. um, or not what's in the moment. It just... Yeah, it can also inner, It can also be responsive inner, on the inner level or the outer. But it doesn't... It's carefree. I love the word free inside of that because it's not responsible for anything. Yeah. And it doesn't worry because of that it doesn't worry we're carefilled and careful are very much worried <laughs> very much worried very much holding yeah um carefree is that i have the image of the fool that tarot yes. card the fool very yeah. much um there's a maybe a bit of obliviousness that goes on that's there. the shadow i um, think yeah and i picture myself hitting someone on a dance floor you yeah know, exactly just wildly dancing and then you're like Quack. and you're like oh i'm so sorry yeah. or you might not even say yeah, i'm you sorry i don't even notice yeah. Well, actually, that's interesting. That's an interesting thing because that's the shift, right? So you hit them, and in that moment, you become carefree or careful, ideally, or, or careless, or careless, or you stay carefree and you didn't even notice. Yeah. And I think those, that's a really, and even though we're not done the list, I kind of want to put a little pin in that. Is like, what are the events that that, that there are shift. events that shift? Yeah. Exactly. And and that's the thing. It's like each of these care 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 quadrants are the entryway to the other one. Yeah um yeah yeah um, that's care i think carefree is like that and in in the context of community arts is so important yeah like there is there's community work and there's organizing and careful and careful but there's no um i there's no possibility of unbridled joy yeah and i think it's things like carefreeness that allow for like spaces where like people of all ages can go where children yes. can be yes um in many ways it's the moments when we're not worried about using the right terminology where we can joke and maybe like straddle that line of um right terminology obviously not ideally in not a harmful way but but sometimes being able to use your own language you can be riskier in that yeah, space you know? you know i was about it's it's related to the question of the community and the taboo and how is the community pinned in by the taboo and then how important those taboos are for entering um transformative space or not or liminal spaces or on you know the spaces of the subconscious or the mythic those belong inside of you know across the borders of taboo and so the carefree allows us to travel into that. And it's really important part of a group. It's where the dreaming aspect of the group mm -hmm. exists. And where is forgiveness in this? That in the whole care map or carefree specifically? I think that's a really beautiful question. And I, from my personal experience, it really has to do with where I believe that I am already whole and always will be. Yeah. And so you can't really hurt me. You can, you can irritate me you can 
I can make a boundary with you, but like the real soul core of me, that's what's allowed me to be in community is my carefreeness is yeah. because I can't be now I'm going to say this and knock on wood, but, um, hurt in that way. It's my soul is free and it, it belongs to a deeper thing where we're, it's, we are all one. So what that person or that other does to me that when I'm in my careful state, can really hurt and my care filled state can also make me feel resentful yeah in my carefree state i'm like well that's just you it's you can still like, dance and you're always welcome here yeah it's no like matter water what off you the did back yeah. you know and i pride myself on that through my youth work and all my community work that there's always a way back in totally totally i feel like that's maybe where i've balanced not being so care filled as other people is that people are always welcome back mm. that's there's a generosity to that. And I think the carefree has space for generosity. Exactly. Because its boundaries are much more open. Yeah, It's exactly. not carrying as much. And there's no rule book that you have to be abiding by. It's almost more of an intuitive, like, response to what's in the space. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And love, love first. It comes from yeah. love first. And which somehow, maybe, I wonder what you think of this, but requires a deep, a deep connection to the self. Yes. And trust of self. And to know, like, I think sometimes I find that people, and I was talking to Emil about this, that that someone who annoys you all of a sudden can be framed as someone who's harming you. Beautiful. Right? And so what does it mean to just, like, be annoyed with someone and also, like, find amusement in that annoyance? Yeah, yeah, the sardonic. Yeah, the sardonic. Exactly. Um, okay, good. Yeah. Yeah. I have a real soft spot for carefree. I have to say, yeah. And carefree people in my groups, I honor them very, I, I have love for every type. Cause like you say, we're always transitioning totally, but people who come in with the fresh air, they're doing some of your work with you. Totally. So are the careful. They totally. The, yeah. You know, the vigilant. And I think it's also like just weighing what what's already in the in the group and what is that dominant what is the dominant thing and so like yeah how do you that's why you that? need to have that balance between these four mm. categories because mm. if you have that rigidity then it is then you're just gonna have if it's all care filled you're gonna just have a bunch of resentful people who feel like people aren't caring for them because yeah. they're always giving and they're burnt out all the time. That's it. I've been there. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, then we have Careless. Okay, now Careless was the revelation for me that got yeah. me super excited about consentfulness. Yeah. I think this was, I mean, I was always super interested in working with you totally. on an idea. But, this but when we got to this, I was something. like, exactly. Yeah. This really unlocked something that really told me a lot about, and we've been saying this the whole time in the consentfulness work, is that it's describing something we're already doing. Yeah. Careless. Why don't you start if you want to? I was very scared of careless initially. I think because of my ADHD, I think I'm always scared that if I'm not super focused, super engaged, I will cause harm. Wow. And so for me to be called careless was me being bad. I had a lot of shame around that. It was me not being focused enough, not being attuned enough to the people around me. And so this conversation has been very freeing for me in terms of um, actually starting to really like carelessness. Um, so I think, Nadia, you shared this example previously, was like, if, if 
we were in a room and say you got super triggered in a facilitation, you as like a participant, and you're just like, fuck this, and you just kind of leave and you slam the door behind you. Um, and people are kind of affronted, someone might cry in response to that. Um, people could be like, that was really careless. That person should have like been more thoughtful about their exit. But the reality is like, you cared for yourself in that moment. Yes. You were being very protective of yourself. You centered your needs. And that's really powerful if you're not used to doing that. And it can feel destabilizing and dysregulating for sure. But there's also something beautiful about you just doing you. Yeah. Yes. I think the, the image I get is from my years of youth camp work and the young people who just don't join the circle. Mm. And, the, and the need and importance for the whole group and what everybody gets in terms of sovereignty and agency from honoring someone who won't join the circle. Yeah. And knowing that there's there, not being in the circle doesn't mean you're not part of the community. Doesn't the mean you're ecosystem. not participating. Doesn't mean you're not participating. Doesn't mean your energy. It's like a whole bunch of, um, uh, what do you call that? Stigma around this act of not conforming. Exactly. And so the care less is so much information for the facilitator. Yeah. Now, when the facilitators care less, there are real questions to ask. Yeah. And I have found myself facilitating in situations where I feel care less. And often it's work that I'm doing for money. Mm. And I have to ask myself, am I crossing my own boundaries right now? Mm. Because that's when I become care less. It's like care drains out of me. Mm. and there's nothing to hold it and I just don't and then there's a negative value of care yeah there's an, exactly exactly it's moved into this negative we're both care I would say both carefree and care less have a negative value of care but care less it actually doesn't care about the self or the group it's drained out I'm in the wrong place oh, interesting well, it's interesting because the fool for carefree is zero. It's like, oh, nice. It just is. Yes. It's zero. Yes, I love that. Okay, and then this goes to the negative. Yeah, I really see that. I really like that. Oh, and in some ways, careful is just towing the line. Very nice. Of care. And then carefilled is like... See, every time we have we talk about... This is why it's gone on for two years. Yeah. There's always going to be an insight. Totally. Yeah, so with care... I mean, I love the care less. I love the idea of um not listening yeah like that to me that that's what that's what i imagine when i imagine carelessness is being in a room and not listening and it in some ways like i'm just thinking about my reactions to it i might get resentful of someone who's careless mm -hmm. i might get angry mm -hmm. try to fix them try, try to, to pull fix them. them all these sorts of things but that's actually telling me something very important it's telling me that hey there's a need there that hasn't been attended to. Nice. Both in myself and the other. So yeah. it actually forces me to check in. Yeah. It doesn't mean that you will check in because you could just hold that resentment and not move through that. But it's actually an invitation for you to be like, what is this bringing out in me? Why am I responding in this way? What do I need to let go of? Or what do I need to actually hold on to more? That yeah. could be a need. That could be a want. That could be a desire. It could be so many things. Yeah, it's a, if he has a signal and a flag, that something's happening. Yeah. And I like how you put this, like, it doesn't necessarily need attending to. 
sometimes the attending is to respect it. And in some ways, it's an invitation for you to have more boundaries, too, because I think often when there's something of careless, I know my my old habit was to run to it and try and bring care-filledness to almost balance that like absence of care in some ways. But it's also like that's one of those dynamics where it doesn't feel like it's reciprocal, that I'm doing it in order to respond versus actual natural desire. So that's often the case of when you ask the question, who is it for? It would be for me to feel better about myself. Wow. But in reality, if I just held the line and was like, this is their journey, they're cool. Obviously, if people are like actually hurt you might be good to attend to them as another human being but like but then that's moving out of that's moving but you don't need to there's no sense of obligation and i think that's often what the case is especially because of the racialized and gendered component there there's a couple of ways i can imagine going from here so now we've got the four quadrants we've got a definition for conceptualist we could talk about transitions can we talk quickly one more thing about carelessness definitely the question of who is it for yeah. in terms of carelessness. Yeah. What would you say? I'd say the carelessness is for the self. For the self, yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, it's on an extreme of that. Well, it's it, only for a part of the self. But then in the end, it's actually for the group as well. If and it's attended, it could be. It could be. If well, I think it's to. often like a, a signal for people. For the group. Yeah. For the group. Oh, that's super interesting. Right? In the actually, way that this, this is a good question because sometimes it could be. Sometimes it could be. And actually, uh, the, the willingness to stand up to a group. Exactly. And say, you know what? This is bullshit. I don't care about this at all. Yeah. Is for them. Yeah, exactly. There's a wisdom Is there. that a carefulness, though, when you do that? I think the thing is, I feel like carefulness is not about risk-taking, but nice. carelessness yeah. is risk. It's, it's risk. inherently risky because we don't live in a society that, that norms that. It. And and because the bond, the conforming bond, is where we get um, social capital. And access to resources, resources, yeah. which is often understood as care, which is not actually the case. That's right. Is that like commodification? Yeah, very interesting. Yeah. I felt like this made it even more clearer for me. Yeah, me too. Very good. I love it. Every time we've done this, it's been great. So then I guess we could talk about the transitions, but we could also do... So there's this game that's in Betty Martin's work. Mm-hmm. And we could, and it's actually, I was actually introduced to that game by Tammy ages ago and Betty Martin's work. Um, have you read the book more, by the way? In the, uh, no, I haven't. I have. It's, it's solid. I oh, we to. were wanting to do the hand, the touching one, the touching game. Yeah. Should we do, I, it's, maybe it's hard for audio for people. Maybe a, a verbal one is easier for the podcast. I'm wondering if. Unless we talk our way through it. I wonder if we talk our way through it because there are certain things about like, say if you were to hold my hand, I was reading the book, they were saying you will actually almost want to turn your body towards it. But when you're taking, you have to keep your thing and this other person has to accommodate you. Okay. Describe it a little more for the people on the podcast. Um, the game itself and everything. Can we just pull it up? Maybe? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, Should I pause this while you pull yeah. it? The three minute game from... it's from within the um, Betty Martin's um, Wheel of Consent book. This is a game for two people or more. 
Two questions, each one offer. How do you want me to touch you for three minutes? And how do you want to touch me for three minutes? Each person takes a turn asking each question and then you do what was agreed upon. When your partner asks what you want, pause to notice what sounds wonderful. Ask for it directly as you can. When you ask your partner what they want and they tell you, pause again and notice, is this a gift I can give with a full heart? Set limits as needed. Yes, you can change your mind in the middle and yes, you can ask for more than three minutes provided you both take an equal amount of time. Set a timer, repeat for a few decades. <laughs> Do you want to talk a little bit about how we've been using it until now and, and its connection um, to facilitation? Yeah. Um, do you mind starting, maybe? My brain? Sure. Yeah, I don't mind at all. So we've been, we've kind of translated, partly because I think we've been on Zoom, we've translated this, and also because facilitation is not a touch experiment. This is, this comes from consent in the context of sexual partners. Um, so we've lifted it into conversation. And we've been working with like how uh, different different iterations. How do you want me to see you? Um, how do you want me to acknowledge you? We were putting different verbs in and playing and with that. Even harder words like how do you want to expose me? Yes, that was a good one. Yeah. And then and then and then playing it like this and kind of there was a kind of a wall that we were hitting, but I feel like every time we did it, we got to see the four quadrants. Yeah. And we got to experience the thick the thickness of the field. And what are and, the four quadrants? Deepening intimacy. Well, I meant the care, the, the care, care filled. filled. Um, so there's also the four quadrants of um, the wheel of consent. And we've tried to map them, but haven't successfully. Yeah, and that's something we're working on. There's like, um, let me just try and pull that up. Okay, so in the wheel of consent, there are four quadrants. Um, it's there's a swerve, swerve, <laughs> serve quadrant. So it's an action <laughs> to benefit others. Serve. Yeah. Serve. Take is an action to benefit yourself. Accept is benefit from the action of others. And allow, which is allow others to act as they want. Okay, so serve, take, accept, and allow. And allow. And so the Y axis is you are doing versus they are doing. And the X axis is giving a gift, it's for them. And then um, on the other end, it's receiving a gift. It's for you. Yes. Um, so I think each of these components, you can see elements of care mapping in all of them. Like, so I think take, you could easily view that as carelessness, for example, but it's, it's not that they easy. don't map. It doesn't there are times on. where careless is giving. Exactly. Yeah. Which is, which I think has been really interesting for us to feel that difference. And that tension in some ways, yeah. because I think what's really interesting is that it makes um, this wheel of consent is very explicit. So you ask for something um, and then limits are made and then you agree to it and then you do it. Right. Yeah. So it's very much in the explicit realm, whereas I think care mapping and all that can be explicit but it's also very much about like attunement to the space in different ways okay so so for this game um it is very much about touch so yeah we were doing it in in these different ways um and i think one of the things we struggled with was how to contain the asking so that there was a clear directionality as to who was doing what to whom? Yeah. In terms of a conversation. Um, yeah, which is so different than touch. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that is that where it doesn't actually map to facilitation because you aren't touching? Well, because I saw Betty Martin doing some webinars online on Instagram where they were talking about, like, can you dance for me? Okay. And so then people dance. So I could ask them, like, can you ask me a series of questions? Okay. Or, like, can you tell me about this thing in your childhood? So I think, and I think one thing that's... Um, very interesting was that uh, in the quadrants, there's a different type of question that's asked. Okay. Um, from a grammar perspective. Um, so in the take quadrant is may I? And then the accept quadrant is will you? Okay. So, so may I shake your hand? Um, so if you're going to allow that, that is yes, you may. Um, if I ask, will you shake my hand? that will mean that your hand will probably come forward first. And you would say, yes, I will. Interesting. Yes, you may versus yes, I will. Yeah. Yes, and then I may I? initiate that action before I will receive your action. Yeah. Interesting. And so I think there's a way of playing that for the consent thing. And I think we're just like working our way in. in. Yeah, okay. Okay, should we try it? Do we want to try touch thing quickly? How do you feel about that? It's okay if you would rather not. I think I'd rather not on the podcast. Okay. I'd let's rather do it do with it. words for the podcast. Okay, I let's think. do that. Just because the level of vulnerability is so high. And it's really hot outside. And it's hot and sticky. Yeah, cool. I was <laughs> like, I don't know if my hand should be touching anyone. <laughs> um, cool. Um, How can we play this time? It's always been so fun and so interesting. And then I guess for the podcast, what do we want to be talking about? Yeah. But I think maybe if we... Um, we can always cut out if we don't like what... If we don't want to share. Yeah. We can always cut it out. Or even just keep parts of it in. So it's like... So I ask you a question and then you actually responded with a question. It's like, what do you want to do to me? What do you want... Yeah. What? How? How do you want to... What verb do we want to use for this? Do we want to say expose or should we? Yeah, we could say expose or um, share. Tell, teach. Mm, I think there needs to be that subjective object subject thing going on. Teach. A bit. What about teach? Um, how do you want to teach me? Yeah. Yeah. And then you would say, may I? Okay. May I teach you about... What do I want to teach Emily? That is even these questions can be very exposing, um, but this is the stuff I love the most. This is something I love about our relationship: is the willingness to this experimentation zone. Um, can I teach you about automatic drawing? Um, sorry, can I or may I? May I. Thanks. May I teach you about automatic drawing? In, in three minutes? Yeah. Will you show me how to do it? Like, I have a notebook. Yes, I will. Yeah, because I think it's hard for me if you just talk about it theoretically, but I would love to see you doing it. Okay. So are we still in this for me? Um... Uh, we're doing. May I? This is for you. Yeah. Yeah. 
brand new uh, notebook. Oh my god. Okay, for the podcast, I am drawing on the first page. It's the second page, the inside page. Emily's new notebook. I don't have a pen. Oh, <laughs> it's um, black. Will you, may you give me a pen? <laughs> yes, I may. Um, do we want to just do it for three minutes? Yeah. Okay. And let's keep this running in case there is talking that we do, but we might cut it out. Okay. Ooh, nice pen. Ooh, it's a Sharpie roller for the record. 0.5. Hello, cute girl. <laughs> Very cute. Okay. So when I'm drawing, it's, I, I, all I do is I'm, it's from the gut. It's like really... Do you, have you ever noticed how your tongue is connected to the gut? No. So if you like move your tongue up and down, you can feel it in the gut. And there's actually, you can actually relax the gut through the tongue. <laughs> For the podcast, Emily's face is hilarious right now. I'm flinching. Yeah. Don't like it? It's just like that layer of awareness that you never thought you could have. And you're like, ah, I feel it in my stomach. And then I'm like, is it a placebo? Like, am I like... Yeah, it's you know? because you really all, we're all, it's all connected. So what I'm trying to do is actually have that feeling move from the gut to the hand. So I'm not, so sometimes when I'm writing, I'm actually writing from the mind to the hand. Cool. But when I'm drawing, I'm drawing from the gut and it tells me where to start. I don't know if I can talk and do it. So I'll just do it and show you. Yeah, 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 that would be great. So once I have that first thing, then I then I give myself a second, and I look back. And, but I'm still not. There's still no thinking. It's like a stream of consciousness. Yeah. There's something about it that's different than doodling for me, which is the connection in the internal connection that is giving me also image. So it's not, it's not pure um, thoughtlessness. What part of care are you in right now? Free. Carefree. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, and then I'm just now, and that's pretty much it. Now I'm done. Okay. And then from here, then I go in and clean up and do what I want. I, put, I always honor what came out first. That's beautiful. You know, so I'm going to like, like now I want to spend hours in there and learning what came out from the gut. What do you learn when you do that? I think it becomes really about my own impulse, what's mm -hmm. hidden inside me. Um, but it never reaches the level of the conscious. So if I would say this comes really from the gut, it moves 
it can move into the heart and it can be very intentional but i it's very rare that i know what the drawing is without someone else you know like i'll know bits like i should recognize the bird or something but to see the story or the narrative Malek and Melody in particular very often can see it in a way that I cannot cannot see it at all. It's in this. I hope you. I feel very self conscious having drawn in your. Oh, I fresh feel book. like this feels like a gift for me. So thank you. Okay. See, and then sometimes, okay, so I'm looking at it and I'm like, oh, it's missing somebody. I could just feel there's this little missing. It was like their hands are there and they're open and it was missing. <laughs> it's interesting because it's like this is care filledness. Oh. That got added in. And this is also like carefreedness. So it also just shows how like the layers are. Oh in my there. god, that's amazing. And like how the sun gives and gives without receiving. Yeah. That's really powerful. And then the bird is the carefree. Yeah. And the tree is holding it. Yeah. The water holds the boat. It's beautiful. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. That's really special to do that together in that way. Can you sign it? Yes, of course. I wonder if that works for the podcast, though. Probably not. Probably not. But I'm really glad we did we that. Do. <laughs> and should we complete the cycle on this and then go back to the podcast? I can stop it for now. Sure. We did a lot of great work for the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We just might, we might end up taking the drawing part out. Okay. Or shortening it. Okay. And I'll just say, this is the part where I was drawing and I put that in. Right, totally. <laughs> Which I've now said, so I can easily. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so what do you, now you ask me, what do you want me to teach you? Okay. I would love for you to teach me a little bit about how you analyze HR. Oh, wow. It's, I know you only got three minutes and that's like a, a probably three week course yeah. to teach, but just like some one, one clear insight would be amazing. It's funny because right before when I asked that question, I was nervous. And so I think that's worth like, so it felt risky in some ways because um, there's like that fear of like, will I be able to? Yes. Um, am I good enough? Like a bit of the imposter syndrome came up. And I think those are all very normal. But those are like those micro reactions we get in every single interaction. Yeah. And so I think that's what's one. That's the cool thing about bringing this attention and this like mindfulness to this process is that we can like every interaction does feel risky even though i'm willing to experiment you know and in facilitation we're always making asks and offers yeah and so bids bids yeah. and and so you're what i hear you saying is that there's like a there's this micro reaction there's a whole sort of um swooping up of reactions that happen that don't that aren't part of the quick moving work in facilitation exactly um and the way that even someone looks or someone reacts, that all creates whether the expansiveness of our willingness to take certain types of risks and to actually fail and um, potentially hurt someone else. Because that is sometimes what happens, but that doesn't mean that there can't be repair. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, okay. So 
I think because I have that reaction, that means I have some limits that I would like. Um, I'd say like maybe if you could give me like one aspect of HR that you sure. like me yeah, to talk yeah, about, yeah. that would make it feel yeah a little more contained. And then if I feel like, I think maybe even you could just tell me what interests you about HR or how why you how you see that field as related. To community work because I, I never really caught that from anyone else before I met you how important facilitation is in the HR field I don't know if I can answer that really that's okay could you reframe the question sure just um, HR has always seemed to me to be a very um, very much about policy and the individual but when I met you, it became about the group. Right. And I think for me, like, I think one of the things we talk about in terms of care mapping is how all the different quadrants of care become the entry point to the other ones. And, and so I think a lot of the way that we understand HR is very much through a careful approach mm-hmm. of these checklists, um, of almost like a rigidity mm-hmm. in, in many ways and making sure people are in their place it's it's not expansive it's like limiting in many kind of ways and i think um when i was doing um started taking on some hr work there was a moment where i realized that um there had to be a different way of doing it that felt that could be healing and generative and it just became this kind of puzzle that i wanted to kind of explore and I think what I love the most about it is that I feel like most of the insights on how we started developing HR practices at Coco was in conversation about the shit that we experienced. Wow. And so in lowering those water lines and seeing all the trends and all the patterns of how people feel and how limited people felt in those spaces, there was just it, it opened up this door of like, well, what if we created a space where when people were in a, in a job interview, they actually could feel like they were being themselves more so than they could before, you know? Um, what if we had an interview process where we didn't have to screen for employment equity? That naturally, the way we wrote a job description, a job call-out would invite racialized, marginalized queer trans folks to apply because they could see themselves already within the job. Um, What if we just made our jobs easier by just doing things in a different way? Um, What if we premised our work on human connection and healing? Um, And so there's this idea that I think I found originally in the UK called restorative HR. And I think Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, And so... Um, and so part of it is like looking at, oh, I forget what they are, but there's like a, basically I've added an extra bubble to them, um, to be about community. What are my four pillars of restorative HR? Basically it was very, uh, commercial, um, like corporate the way that they did it, but it had a really cool thing, um, about, oh, right. So how, so basically the original idea is like, the needs of the organization, the needs of um, the individual, and then the needs of the role. And how do you weigh all those things, three things together? And I thought it was a really great kind of succinct way of doing it. I wanted to 
kind of layer on a more explicit, like anti-racism um, approach to it. And so um, we ended up adding another bubble of like community, like how does it kind of um, respond to the needs of community also? Um, see, it's hard for me to explain this because it's so expansive in many ways. It's already a brilliant answer. Um, yeah, I think it, it just, I think really it's about taking that leap of doing things differently. And I think the powerful thing is that when, like we, we do a hiring in a very particular way at Coco and, um, and we've like shared those practices with many, many groups at this point. And I think one of the pieces of feedback I've heard the most from people who don't even get the job is like, wow, that felt really different. It doesn't mean that people won't feel like shit after a job interview. That's not the goal because it's still a fucking job interview. That's going to happen. Yeah, and there's internalizations on all sides. What's ours versus what them, yeah. what's theirs. And, so, and the need to for work, you know, all these kinds of things. And I think the feeling after we started really refining the process, and it's always evolving, I think that's the key thing, is that there might be a checklist, but you need to always be willing to be responsive based on um, who steps into the role, what they think is should be improved. There needs to be that flexibility built into it. And I think the first time we did this hiring process, I did not doubt who we had hired. But previous times, I always had a question about whether or not we were hiring the right person. Wow. Just from a moral perspective. And so often it's like, we should always be hiring racialized people. Yes, but we shouldn't be hiring racialized people who can't do the job. What we need to be doing is creating job descriptions where racial, qualified racialized people, because there's more than enough of us out there, are applying for the jobs and getting them. But um, but I think that's a big part of it. It's like... Yeah. How does the, what I hear you saying is that, here's one, one specific example, is that the job description... Yeah is intended to already attract across difference yeah and, and across different vectors it's so one of the things that we've done is we get rid we got rid of cover letters yeah. because um it's a very specific formula and people spend a lot of time on it but we're not getting the answers we need and they're not having any kind of clue as to what we want and so it's also a way of like early on in the process signaling expectations to the applicant and so if they're looking at it, they're like, yo, I'm not going to apply for this job because I don't know how to answer those questions. That makes it easier for them. Yes. And it makes and it easier for us as well. And so I find that typically if we use this approach, the quality of applicants are just much higher overall. And the richness of material is just a lot. It's more, it's just more present. Um, um, and then we can do things like we can put images and that makes it more accessible. Another little thing that we do is um, um, putting a box at the top of the job description, which lays out the benefits, the hours, the pay, all those sorts of things. Um, um, because it's hard looking for work, right? And so if you can just literally read first two lines and you realize, okay, it doesn't pay me enough. Oh, the hours won't work. Then you don't have to read another two pages of the job. Yeah. Process. So you're actually centering the applicant instead of having them 
need to kind of come and beg for a job that they might not even want. And really, the one of the goals is that they are, should be interviewing us as much as we're interviewing them. Obviously, there is a power dynamic where we are interviewing them. But one of the little things that we do in a job in the job interview is whenever there's an applicant in the space, we always ask them, we always tell them why they're in the room. Ah, that was the most powerful part of the hiring process. And I think honestly, for me too, and that will be it's like very moving. It's very moving because you the look on people's faces. They're honored. They're honored and they're surprised. Yes. And they're and I think the most common bodily response I see is like people's shoulders relax. relax. Yeah. And they're like, oh, I am qualified for the job. I could show up as myself. And I usually find that at that moment, people start laughing. Like our, I find, I don't know if that's the case when you, you were interviewed, they're but I very warm, very warm. There's a lot more laughter um, um, and gratitude. And there's a lot more from both sides. Yeah. It also opens the door for me as the person doing the hiring to, to overtly show gratitude to that exactly. person. And to be okay with learning in that space both from the applicant and the applicant learning yeah. from... Because you're hiring your equal. You're not hiring exactly. under, under person. And so it, it also creates a foundation for reciprocity, I think, um, um, also. I mean, I think arguably the the hiring process can be almost too care-filled in some ways. That's a, I and would it can say. create a norm. Yeah, and it can create a norm in the job. It's like, and when and you're... And it's tiring as exactly. an interviewer. And so... So that's something to definitely be thoughtful about. But I do think because of the violence of most job the job interviews, I think it's actually really powerful to have that. It's antidote. restorative. It's restorative, ideally. Um, and it's been great because afterwards we can sometimes talk to people who we didn't offer jobs and like say, like, let's stay connected or like say, like, hey, we would love to you to apply for a different one. And it it and that's where like that checklist is actually really important because it's like, no, you want to say a thank you note to applicants afterwards. Exactly. Um, sorry, that was more than three minutes. That's anyway. great. I, I'm so thrilled. Thank you for yeah. that. Your wisdom in this area is really unique. Very unique. And I really respect it so much. There's so many great places I've worked that haven't had this piece, the HR piece in place. In, and a, in a dreaming way, in a creative way, in a really forward-thinking way and the orgs all suffer for it yeah. and another part of hiring is onboarding yeah. and and like and so for like there's that whole entire cycle from the hiring to the onboarding to the offboarding like it's not a bad thing if people leave an organization people should be encouraged to grow and that organizational renewal is so beautiful and so powerful and so what happens if you intentionally invite that into your process? So that there's good blood, not bad blood. Exactly. Moving out and, into the community. And there's stagnation. There's yeah. like movement and And shifts. people feel they can take what they've learned. I learned this at Dream a Dream too. They have a beautiful HR process. And, and that they, they're the, both the hiring process is a learning process. And then as people leave, they can take the knowledge with them. Exactly. You're not holding it back. This is RIP and you're not to use it elsewhere. Exactly. And I think that's what I want. It's like, I, I don't know if this should be in the thing, but like, it's not uncommon for people to have gone through a hiring process and go to their old thing. It's like, this is what they did in their hiring process. Yeah. And that is like the ideal scenario. Yes. Take it. And take it, it like, take it and you do you kind of thing. So yeah. When your work is at that level and you know, you're doing good in the world, then it's its own inherent reward. And also the reality it's, 
it's good for the time that it was built in. And the reality is like, as long it as will it will evolve and it should evolve. And because if you're too stuck about the intellectual property component, you stay behind, you stay behind and you get stuck in that careful kind of zone and it doesn't evolve because this process, no matter how cool it might feel now, will feel outdated in five years. That's such a beautiful way to look at it. I felt that this way with all, all inventions in the world. Give it away and the next thing will come. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, and it's related to what we were saying with Mother in the last podcast, which is start before you think you're ready. There, These two things are really, give it away and start before you're ready allows actually some other energy to be part of the creative process. Well, actually, it's a reading from HSI. Um, I forget. It's Bridges, I think. I don't know. Sorry. Citation. But what, what they were saying was that the beginning is actually when you let go. Beautiful. If that's not the ending, the beginning is the letting go. And then you're in this kind of like um, uh, neutral zone, zone yes. where that's where the learning happens and that's where the change happens, that's where the imagination happens. And then the middle is the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> and then it wraps around. And then the end is the beginning. Exactly. No, the middle is the end. Is, uh, it's all the beginning. It's all a fractal of one it's another. All it's all the beginning. Okay, so, okay, so that, okay. Was, that yeah. was round two. Okay, so now you have to ask me... What do you want to teach me? What do you want to teach me? It's interesting because I'm like, I don't know what I could teach Nadia. Even though you just taught me so yeah. much. <laughs> that's so funny. <laughs> that's so funny because that's so, that's that internal dialogue. And think in terms of this podcast really being about training facilitators, that internal dialogue and it's how it doesn't necessarily attune to a consensus. Can you say more about that? Meaning what is true? I use myself to read my own facilitation. Yeah. But my read on myself actually very rarely has anything to do with what's going on in a concrete, tangible, consensual way, yet it's valuable and important information. And that line, I, I'm, I feel it's... Could you give me an example? Yeah, it just happened with you. It's like, you just taught me something, but your, your inner dialogue is saying, do I have anything to teach? And for you to have a read on that, to be self-aware and mindful of that, keeps me safe. Mm-hmm. So, but it, it doesn't mean that it's true, true. right? I don't, I, in no way do I feel you have nothing to teach Totally. So, and, it, and in many ways, I know I have stuff to teach you. But you still have to be honest about that voice. Yeah. And, and I think because it, there's a fear under there, right? Yeah. It's once again, going back to that performance anxiety and the riskiness of like, what happens if I say something that Nadia's like, oh, I already know all about that. But that isn't real because you're a very curious person. Um, but maybe I'll go with the first thing that came to mind. Um, I would like to teach you about my mom. Yes, please. Um, and um, my relationship. Are, are there any like conditions to that? Like, is there an aspect? I'm so open. I think I would just like to share about how she moves through the world with kindness and how she relates. Maybe I can talk about our relationship between my mom and I. 
Have I talked to you much about her? A little bit uh, in the park that day. Not this park, when we were in that other park down by the big one. The big one. With the pool. Victoria, I think it's called. Laurier. Laurier, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think my mother is one of the most present people I've met. Um, she has an ability to find lightness and joy in anything. And she, like, hasn't had an easy life. She's also... She just manages to be so present with the people that she's with. I think what she has managed to do, and it's something that I'm learning, is really to experience unconditional love. Um, and in a As way, a giver or just... both, yeah. both. I think when, I think I always felt like I had this filial, like duty to go back and like live with her and take care of her. But I realized that that wouldn't honor our relationship in many ways, um, because I think we have a fundamentally reciprocal relationship and that in order to honor her love for me, it's to to center my needs and my desires, because that's what will ultimately make her happy. Yeah. Um, and um, she also has taught me that she has a intense anger. She's like, she will like flare up like a typhoon and then cool down like really, really quickly. And so it's nice to actually experience her anger and have her angry at me and for it to feel safe. And I don't have to agree with it, but I know I won't be hurt by it because there's still so much love. Um, we literally end every single fight that we have laughing and calling each other annoying. <laughs> um, because we're just like, even if there's like, how dare you do this? That's absolutely ridiculous. So like actual anger and like real grievances. And then we just realize that it doesn't matter because we love each other so much. And it's, so I actually look forward to fighting with my mom because it's such a beautiful freeing moment of repair that I know will happen no matter what. Um, um, and so I want to take that lesson and like experience that with other people. It's like, how can I honor other people with my anger in the way that I feel like she has honored me with her anger? Wow. Even if it's completely ridiculous sometimes because she's just grumpy one day, you know, but it is still an honor because I know she loves me enough to get angry at me, you know? Yeah. Thank you. Wow. Um, that's incredible. And I, the connection to facilitation and to our, and to our own family stories and how we work and walk in the world and what those inner voices are and the, like, just your, I, I see the connection throughout everything I know about you, but even this little piece about HR, it's all in there. Because the, the belief in repair and that, and what that moment can mean. Extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, what, what do you want me to teach you? Um, 
Yeah, I can feel that nervousness come right? too. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's really um, edgy. Will you teach me about love? Oh my god. What do I know about love? Is there any parameters? You can set the parameters. Okay. Well, or the limits, if we're using the will consent language. I guess the main thing I have, there's two things that come to mind immediately. One is the sense of the karmic for me is very strong in love. And when I say that, what I mean are pre-existing and unspoken imbalances in relationships that I feel that I notice with everyone from my parents and my immediate family to strangers, total strangers, mm. like complete strangers. And, um, and that I never interact with. I can feel these tugs and balances mm. and attractions and repulsions and the, and these, the, the flaring up and the wanting to help and the wanting to rescue and all of this complexity. I feel in every relationship and for me that there's something about love this big word love that has a lot to do with this push and pull that I constantly feel and I think it's what's allowed me to do my community work in such a personal way hmm. and because I really love like I feel for all, for all that I'm uh, maybe could be perceived as a little detached because I'm not over functioning I feel real love and what I and we're, and really have always had a lot of love in my life, but didn't really recognize it until I got into community work, mm. where things became explicit that were implicit, especially camps and the power of hope camps in particular, surfaced a lot of language that helped me understand my own sense of love in the world, and that love is the way to to love is the way to walk through the world is what I learn from all that work so that's one and then like more recently and more consciously i feel like you and i've talked about this a bit it's like really learning about unconditional love yeah and it's um and 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 how and how it's brought the best things out of me at intending maybe for the first time to really try to love unconditionally and and learning the shadow of that but also what it brings out of me how it transformed my life to try. And the shadow being, it's, it's, it's care-filledness. Unconditional love is care-filledness. And it goes, when it goes too far, it becomes self-effacing and worse. Self-effacing would be okay, but actually goes into the realm of like self-erasing. Mm -hmm. And then, the sh and that's not even the shadow yet. That's still like almost built into yeah. it. But then the shadow is, then how do I try to get my needs met? Yeah. So manipulation. Then it goes into manipulation. And resentfulness. Yeah. And so that was a huge lesson this year about unconditional love, realizing actually that, because I think until now, I've been like, one day I will be able to love unconditionally. And then I kind of have, at 42, kind of reached a place where I could experiment with it. And then I realized that's actually not what I want. I don't, I don't want... I want it to be part of the cycle, but I also want to know what I want and to have those needs met and that push pull to be 
more living. There's something about unconditional love that turned out to be flattening and deadening in a way that surprised me. I think those are some of the things I know about love right now. <laughs> That's really interesting. Um, can I respond? Yes. Well, one of the things I read probably on Instagram was saying like how unconditional love really should only be about a parent-child dynamic. Uh, because that sets the baseline for different things. But actually, adult relationships should be conditional. And I kind of like that. But I'm also like, but also unconditional love. You know, like I'm both, right? Uh, and mutual unconditional love is very different than one-sided unconditional love as you might get with a parent. Right. And I also don't know if, like, I think for me it's, like, un the, the unconditional experience of loving is different from... Unconditionally relating. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think those get conf conflated that, yeah. like, even if I have to if be... You're hateful. <laughs> ...in a different city, I will still love you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah, not I, not I will I will give up going to the other city for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I and this I see in facilitation in, I mean, in the care-filled way, but also I have met so many facilitators over the years, and I would say that that, that goal, the selflessness, is kind of baked into the work in a very martyrdom, uh, martyrdom, and pro possibly yeah, often problematic, but also can bring groups to new heights. To have a leader that is working towards that can we look at the the shadow cells and see yes. if maybe the shadows yeah so we're looking back at the chart on in the betty martin book maybe the shadow cells are actually where the care mapping oh maps really? on. there's always an insight maybe Who okay knows? let's take a look okay so for the take quadrant the shadow side is perpetrator stealing groping assault rape war okay i don't see that in the contemptfulness quadrants I could see careless. Careless. Okay. As the shadow of careless. Yeah, the shadows. Sorry, that's what I meant. But okay. I, the, so I, the shadow of these match the shadows of these. Potentially. Okay. Let's okay. just see. Um. Yeah. Because I could see the idea of perpetrator, like. Okay. Kind of vibe. Yeah. Yeah. So can I? I've seen those in group dynamics for sure. Yeah. Um. Okay. Shadow side of um the accept quadrant is freeloader, assumption of privilege, slavery, entitled. Carefree. Carefree. Yep. Shadow side of allow is tolerate, endure, endure, doormat, pushover, victim, passive. Uh-oh. Carefield. Carefield. <laughs> nice catch. Oh, shit. Shadow side for serve is do-gooder, rescuer, martyr, slavery. Carefield. No, no. Care, careful, I would say. Oh. So read, the, read the one do before. Do-gooder. Oh, wait. So allow is tolerate, endure, doormat. Oh, that's care-filled. That's totally. care-filled. And then careful. Yeah. Careful is serve. Yeah. Which is do-gooder, rescuer, martyr, like very yeah. much like follow the script. It's oh. not quite the same, but there is definitely, I think. I feel it really strongly. Yeah. It's the heavier, it's the dark, the darkest of the shadows. Yeah, exactly. The thickest. And it's cool because that's so neat. We don't work as much, and I guess this is maybe one of my final questions. Well, there's there's one statement I want to make actually in this podcast, which is that this kind of work is so interesting to me between us, mm -hmm. and it's at this place in my practice is the best training I can get is someone who's willing to go into these depths 
I find that group trainings don't help me as much anymore because my group work has a certain um, style to it that I I feel is evolving on its own through it's it's the groups I work with that evolve my style. Yeah, I don't agree. I don't I don't know. Sometimes the training is fun just to be with other people and but this kind of one on one digging in and kind of really the like meanderingness of it. Yeah, exactly. 